This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this show a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, and graphic violence, including homicide. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 316. Hey there, folks. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and tell you about my journey as a writing professional. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 57 of my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Daniel, Brian, and Fiona returned to the nest after narrowly surviving their battle with Miriam Bakhtivar and a group of vampire thugs. There, they laid out Miriam's staked body on a southward-facing balcony, where Miriam once counseled Fiona before the vamps captured and turned her. Soon the sun will rise and bathe the balcony in light, bringing an end to Miriam's undead existence. Daniel left Fiona alone with Miriam's body to grieve. But Miriam isn't quite dead. Though her vampire body has been immobilized by the stake through her heart, her mind can still communicate telepathically. She pointed out to Fiona that their victory had required Fee to make herself helpless, so that Daniel could attack Miriam while she was distracted by feeding. This was something Fiona could never have done six months ago, and Miriam is tremendously proud of her for making such progress. This moment of communion was interrupted when Daniel returned to the balcony, carrying the news of Victor's attack on Eastside General. Daniel and the Summersell rushed to the hospital, where both Sasha and Abby lay in critical condition. The news is grim. Abby has lost Darla, her unborn child, and her uterus was so damaged by Victor's assault that she will never be able to bear children again. Sasha has been left in a vegetative state, her cerebral cortex permanently damaged by the side drugs she took to fight Victor. The hospital is only keeping her body alive so they can harvest her organs. Sasha was a registered donor, and she would have wanted her death to save as many lives as possible. As Daniel reflected on this fact he heard a telepathic voice of agreement from somewhere close by. To his astonishment, he found that it was coming from the apparently unconscious Abby. When Sasha's body fell unconscious, she was in a full gestalt with Abby, and it appears that a piece of her soul has remained inside Abby's body, just as Daniel shares his body with his alter ego, Danny. After reuniting with the rest of the summer cell, Sasha shared the secret that she and Abby had uncovered. Victor has a cybernetic mesh inside his brain, which is why he's now immune to telepathy. 
The cell is in agreement. Victor has to be stopped, today, before he can slip into hiding again. Now that they know his secret, they have a plan for how they can do that, if they can get him to go where they want him. Leave that to me, Daniel says. If I know Victor, he's going to be looking for a way to get out of the hive's crosshairs, and I know just who he'll trust to find it for him. Making the Cut, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 57 Victor glowered up at the parking garage entrance, his instincts prickling uneasily. Something felt off. Granted, he was probably just off balance because he had his telepathy shut down. After a lifetime of depending on his psi senses, keeping the walls up felt like walking around with his eyes closed. He could do it when he had to, but it always made him twitchy. And all the more so, since Sasha King had shown him he could still be hurt through his psi senses, even with the vamp's neural network in his head. Stupid bitch. King had been a good support operative, but she'd never had what it took to be a frontline combatant. Now she'd gotten herself killed playing hero in a fatal outburst of hive loyalty. She never should have interfered. He flexed his arm and winced a little. It still throbbed where the bitch had shot him, even after the back-alley healer was done with it. Victor was sure the guy had screwed up something in there, but he couldn't afford to be picky. He was on a tight deadline, assuming that his contact showed. Victor pulled out his new phone, freshly purchased from a first-level kiosk vendor, then dialed the number from memory. The familiar voice answered on the second ring. "'Hello again, Victor,' Evan said pleasantly. "'Everything work out with your little emergency job transfer?' "'We're about to find out,' Victor growled. Evan, are you sure about this guy? I appreciate discretion as much as the next man, but I haven't seen so much as a security guard in the last half a click. You could do a mass execution here, and I don't think anyone would notice. That is the general idea, Victor, Evan said, his voice mild. I'm not sure how they did it in the collective, but as a rule, smugglers prefer staying out of the public eye. With the office complex under renovation, that garage is about as out of the way as you're going to get. Unless you'd prefer to work with the traffickers on street level, of course. Victor's lip curled in irritation, but he bit back a retort. Evan was the last ally he had left who had the contacts to get him out of this mess. It wouldn't do to waste that resource in a moment of frustrated anger. Yes, you've done enough of that already, haven't you? He'd gone into the dark place while he was chasing Abby. He hadn't meant to. He'd tried to be careful and reasonable, to plan the whole thing out, just like any other mission. And he'd done a damned good job of it, too. He'd had the whole hospital staff dancing like puppets, until Sasha King showed up and saw through his tactics. When he realized Abby had slipped out of his trap 
and that last squad of security guards launched their ridiculous charge against him. Well, he had to admit it. His control slipped. It was so much easier to just go into the dark place for a while, to let that other side of himself take care of things. Except that he'd come out of it to find his child dead and her traitorous mother bleeding out on the floor. The dark place was effective, but it wasn't exactly discriminating. You still there, Victor? Evan asked. I'm not sure, but I think I can hear you fuming. You haven't answered my question, Victor said. How much do you trust this guy? I trust him to get you to Algra more or less unharmed. Isn't that enough? More or less unharmed? Well, you know how it is with freight dogs. The ships are old, held together with duct tape and good feelings, and they fly them like hellbats. But they're some of the best pilots cash can buy. No worries, you'll make it to the rendezvous with your new employer. Victor grunted an acknowledgement of this. All right. I meet him inside, right? Yes, indeed. The door will open for you two minutes before your meeting, and not a moment sooner. Is there anything else? Victor thought about it. He was still uneasy, but Evan was solid. He'd proven that well enough before. No, we're good. Thanks, Evan. Enjoy your new home, Victor. I hope you like the heat. Evan rang off. Victor tucked himself into an alcove near the garage's security door and waited for it to open. One good thing about meeting in such a remote location, there wasn't much chance that some hive member would run across him while he waited for his flight. Not that they'll ever stop looking. His gut twisted a little as he thought about that. Killing King had been a mistake, and he resented his darker half for indulging itself so foolishly. The elders probably would have left him alone, if not for that. After all, Abby's treachery had been blatant, his anger at her entirely understandable. But King would be seen as an innocent bystander, and the elders would bring the full wrath of the hive down on him if they ever caught him. She may have been a meddlesome, do-gooding bitch, but she was a well-trained bitch, and the elders hated losing useful resources almost as much as Victor hated wasting them. That made him think of Abby again. He ground his teeth together, cursing the bad fortune that had ruined his perfect happy ending. All those years of effort, the carefully staged death of her mundane parents, the equally orchestrated rescue, the countless hours working with her in the Somnok, all of it gone. He'd been so close to getting what he wanted, a child to call his own. Now he'd have to start all over again. And since Algra was a major stronghold for the Vampire Syndicate, it wasn't likely he'd be seeing many female telepaths for a while. That consideration alone almost made him want to stay in Metamore City, to wait out the Hive's manhunt and then start looking for new prospects. But no, this wasn't going to blow over. Best to get out of town now and worry about his posterity at a later date. Algra wasn't his first choice for a new homeland, but there was no place in the world he'd be safer, and the job offer couldn't have come at a better time. Victor silently thanked Evan for thinking of him when his soon-to-be employer called, looking for a new security consultant. 
The security door buzzed, and Victor pulled it open and slipped inside. It locked behind him a moment later, which was a little bit more paranoid than the norm, but as Evan had pointed out, smugglers had good reason to be a little skittish. A skimmer horn beeped once, echoing in the concrete maze of the parking garage. The echoes made it hard to pinpoint where it was coming from, but Victor knew where he was supposed to go. Up two levels, straight ahead up the ramp, then around the corner to the manager's office. As he came up the stairs to the second level, he could see that some of the lights were out on this floor of the garage, leaving an irregular patchwork of blue-white illumination and pools of deep shadow. He had just gone around the corner when he was struck by a sudden wave of dizziness. An instant later, his guns and knives tore themselves free from their sheaths. The weapons flew twenty meters through the air and thudded loudly against the body of a parked skimmer. A skimmer with Brian Summers strapped into the driver's seat. A trap! Victor snarled and reached out with his telekinesis, trying to snatch back his weapons. They didn't budge. He dimly remembered that magnetism got stronger the closer the object was, while his own TK worked at the same strength regardless of range. He tried to snatch at Summers with his power, but the man was bonded to the skimmer and wouldn't budge. Victor looked around for anything else to use as a weapon, but there were only a few other skimmers, nothing small enough for him to lift it. Victor gritted his teeth. Fine. He'd get in close and kill the pudgy son of a bitch with his bare hands. He charged in, watching closely in case Summers pulled a gun and he needed to dive for cover. Victor still wasn't used to fighting without his telepathy, so he had only a split second's warning before a tall, dark shape came out of the shadows and tried to blindside him. He dropped and spun to avoid the high kick the figure aimed at him, catching himself on his hands and quickly turning to block the next attack. They exchanged a flurry of blows and counterblows, lightning quick. By the time they parted, Victor didn't need to see the man's face to know who he was fighting. What the fuck, Daniel? Victor snapped, incredulous. I get you a ticket out of the hive and this is what I get for it? Daniel darted in, fainted, then jumped back when Victor didn't take the bait. Right, because the glamorous life of the lone teep worked so well when you did it. Victor almost choked on a laugh. Are you fucking serious? He waved a hand briefly toward Brian. This prick stole your girl, remember? Gods, I can't believe you didn't get out when you had the chance. Daniel shrugged once. Got a better offer. Victor spotted what looked like an opening and struck but Daniel anticipated the move and blocked it. Another quick exchange of blows passed before Victor got clear again. They'll make you choke on that offer before they're through, he said, already breathing hard from the exertion. Tried to warn you, you're going to be just another lapdog. Daniel's eyes went cold. Better that than a rabid mutt who needs to be put down. Victor snorted. And you think you're the man to do it? This is your last chance, Vic. Surrender now and we'll let the police have you. Victor reached out with his teak to show Daniel what he thought of that idea, but the younger man saw it coming and disrupted the attack with a head-on assault. 
As Victor blocked and parried Daniel's blows, he couldn't help admiring how much his pupil had improved. Daniel had a ferocity now that he'd lacked before, and it kept Victor off balance enough that he couldn't concentrate on using his powers. He didn't know what Daniel had been up to these last few months, but he'd obviously learned how to take a fight seriously. It was a real shame Victor was going to have to kill him. They whirled and spun across the garage floor in a deadly dance. Daniel's youth and speed matched against Victor's strength and cunning. The kid hit more often, but Victor hit harder. And one hit was all you needed if you could hit the right spot. Eventually, Victor got the opening he was looking for and scored a hit to the side of Daniel's knee. The young man grunted in pain, and Victor rode him to the floor, smashing Daniel's head against the concrete. He was about to deliver the killing blow when he felt a hand grip the base of his neck. Summers. He'd almost forgotten about the little Sparky during his fight with Daniel. Victor felt a sting of electricity against his skin, and then stars exploded in front of his eyes. Victor spun on him and called up his teak, intent on crushing the man's windpipe, but all that happened was a blinding surge of pain and a gut-wrenching vertigo. Victor bent double and almost retched at the sensation. What? What the fuck did you do to me? Summers wiped the blood from his nose and winked, his eyes alight with triumph. That's a nice piece of hardware you've got in your head, Vic. Real state-of-the-art stuff. No ferromagnetics in there, so I couldn't just rip it out of your head. But it's still circuitry, and it's tied in there nice and tight with your brain cells. Victor stared. How did Summers know about the circuitry? He hadn't told anyone, and the vamps wouldn't have said anything. See, my wife Sasha, whom you just murdered, passed on the word to us about what you'd done to yourself. With all that wiring in your head, you're half-computer now, so I just logged in. He raised a finger, baring his teeth at Victor. And that means I own you, bitch. Sudden rage boiled up in Victor's mind, burning past the stunned and disoriented synapses as he slipped toward the dark place. He grabbed Summers and slammed him bodily against the nearby skimmer, as his vision literally went red with fury. I'll kill you! I'll rip off your fucking head! I'll... Summers gestured. Victor's body froze, unable to move a muscle. He tried to choke the little man in front of him, tried to scream, tried to run, but his body would do none of it. He felt the cool metal barrel against his temple for only an instant. He never heard the shot. Brian flinched as the gun went off a meter in front of his face. Victor's body fell limp. The contents of his skull sprayed liberally across the garage floor to Brian's left. The neural circuitry made for a liberal accenting of silver among the usual shades of red, gray, and pink. Daniel lowered the pistol slowly, his arm remaining stiffly at his side. He gazed for a long moment at the body, his face expressionless. Then he glanced over at Brian. His bright blue eyes looked like they were made of glass. I'm all right, 
Brian assured him, getting slowly to his feet. You? Daniel nodded once. He'd taken a nasty blow to the head when Victor brought him down, but apparently his healing power had taken care of it. He wiped down the gun with careful, deliberate motions before pressing it into Victor's hand. Then he walked over to the corpse's head and lifted it under the arms. Brian took the legs by unspoken agreement, and together they carried it over to the nearest entrance to the garage. Brian opened the electronic door with a gesture, revealing the narrow skyway beyond. The location of the trap had been chosen carefully, not just for the garage itself, but for what lay beneath it. Two levels below lay one of the most dangerous sectors of the street, a place where the things that lived under the city were known to hunt. Daniel and Brian removed all of Victor's identification, put his knives back in their holsters, then dumped the body and the pistol over the edge of the skyway. Brian watched as the body vanished into a tiny dot, then disappeared into a snowdrift. There would be nothing recognizable left by morning, and even if he were found, the evidence would point to suicide. Brian went back inside and used their non-detection scroll to erase the evidence from the scene. The spell was Artax's work, and while Brian didn't care much for the man, he did know how to make such things accessible for the layperson. The scroll disintegrated in a cloud of glowing sparks, and Victor's blood vanished from their clothes along with it. "'That'll do it,' he said, brushing off his palms. "'We should go before we contaminate the scene.' He turned around and saw Danny standing back at the entrance, looking out over the skyway. She looked over her shoulder at him as he approached. Her eyes glistened with tears, and though she was a few centimeters taller than Brian— she looked very vulnerable and small. His arms folded around her in a gentle embrace. She rested her head on his shoulder and let the tears run silently down her cheeks. They had been back in the skimmer for nearly ten minutes before Danny spoke. It doesn't really fix anything, does it? Her voice was subdued and thoughtful. Brian shook his head. No, it doesn't. He thought of Sasha and blinked back the tears that welled up in his own eyes. But it stops it from happening again. Sometimes that's the best you can do. Danny nodded, keeping her eyes fixed on the world outside her window. I guess so. Brian reached over and took her hand. He wouldn't ask her if she and Daniel were all right. You were never all right after your first kill. Still, Danny seemed to sense the unspoken question. Daniel needs to be alone for a while. He doesn't regret what we did, but he needs some time. I understand, Brian said, and he did. Silence fell between them for a few minutes. When Danny spoke again, her voice was hesitant. I feel like... What happened to Sasha was my fault. I keep thinking, if I had just told you guys who Abby was, you wouldn't have fallen for Miriam's trap, and Sasha wouldn't have been left to face Victor alone. She lowered her eyes. If you want me to leave, I'll understand. 
Brian rolled that around in his mind for a while, weighing his words carefully. No, he said at last. This whole thing started because we thought we had to isolate ourselves from those who weren't perfect enough to measure up. He's too broken. He's defective. He's useless. He shook his head. Maybe if we did a better job of embracing our own people, we wouldn't breed the kind of resentment and hatred that turned Victor into what he was. That was the Hive's policy, not yours. Brian scoffed. (laughs) It's the same thing. We are the Hive, all of us together. We made those decisions together. Either because we thought they were right, or because we were cowed into going along with it. A group can agree unanimously and still be wrong. He pushed his glasses further up on his nose, setting his jaw. If we want things to change, we have to start a new way of thinking about how we treat the have-nots in the collective. And it's going to start with us, with the summer cell. Maybe the others will agree with us and maybe they won't, but I'm tired of just going along with the majority opinion to keep from rocking the boat. Danny turned and looked at him, amazed respect in her eyes. Do you think the elders will let you get away with that? Brian shrugged dismissively. I honestly don't care what they think anymore. They're supposed to be servants, not leaders. It's time they remembered that. He smiled then, taking Danny's hand again. It wasn't much of a smile, really. They had both seen too much pain and death for their hearts to be very light, but he gave it his best effort anyway. You are welcome in our family. As Danny, or Daniel, or whoever... She returned his weak little smile with one of her own, but he saw something soften around her eyes. Thank you, she said, and it probably will be as Danny most of the time, at least for a while. She turned and looked back out the window at the city below. Daniel has done some things that we'd like to leave behind. Brian nodded knowingly as he turned the skimmer onto the freeway and headed for home. Haven't we all? And that's the end of Chapter 57. Come back next time for the final episode of Making the Cut. Sharon O'Brien said... Writing became such a process of discovery that I couldn't wait to get to work in the morning. I wanted to know what I was going to say. So let's see what I had to say this week. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of January 1st through January 7th, 2022. I wrote 3,027 words this week over the course of 4.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 712 words per hour. I wrote on 4 out of 7 days this week. This week I finally got back to fiction writing again, after a break of a month and a half. I continued working on my Alex story, Out of the Shadows. Reading back over what I've written so far, I'm pleased with what I'm seeing, and the characters still feel vivid and alive to me. This week I wrote a scene where Honor and Alex are wrestling with a lot of difficult, mixed emotions, 
and I think the intensity of that moment did a lot to pull me back in. This story is now long enough that I've decided to break it up into proper chapters, and this week I finished chapter 4. The manuscript is now at 11,000 words. I also worked on the recording scripts for the last few chapters of Making the Cut. The audio for the chapters themselves is already finished, but this is the intro and outro material for the podcast. On Monday, I had the day off of work, so I spent a few hours revising the print version of Making the Cut. In the process of re-recording the book over the last year and a half, I found a number of typos and formatting errors that I had missed in previous editing passes, as well as a few problematic phrases that 2007 Chris was oblivious about, but 2022 Chris knows better than to use. I corrected these sections in my recording scripts as I was narrating, and now they've been incorporated into the paperback and ebook versions as well. I can now say with confidence that making the cut is the best version of itself that I can make it, and after 15 years, the process of writing and editing my very first novel is finally at an end. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this week. Please welcome Doug. This week I decided that it was time to start releasing Out of the Shadows to my Patreon subscribers. Having the ongoing feedback of my patrons was a big part of what kept me motivated on the Honor Bound trilogy, and I've decided that I need that cheering section to help me finish this story. If you'd like to read this story as it's coming together, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a monthly pledge at the $3 level or higher. In addition to seeing the first drafts of my stories as I'm writing them, you'll also get access to sneak peeks, cover reveals, character bios, and other cool stuff. Plus, every patron gets access to exclusive Metamore City bonus art from talented artists like Ben Clifford and Carol Foote. If you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. You're the folks who make this show possible. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2022 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.